signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So in these first 10 verses of Hebrews, we are given a brief description of what are referred to as the ordinances of divine worship. Primarily the ordinances of divine worship in the Old Testament. Now, make no mistake about it that much of our worship, even in our churches today, has some semblance or some resemblance to the Old Testament worship, but it's certainly not the same. The the similarities are in the fact of what the tabernacle was pointing to. It was pointing to the very thing, the very worship that we have today. Uh, We are now worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. He has already come. He has already fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law perfectly. He went to the cross. He atoned for the sin of His people. He rose from the grave and was seen by many witnesses. And then, as was prophesied from the beginning, He ascended back to the right hand of the Father where He now lives ever living to make intercession. But what we see being given to us this morning is what was referred to as a pattern. It was a pattern of what typical ceremonial worship was to look like. The tabernacle itself is, we often interchange these thoughts. There was a tabernacle at first and then there was a temple. And remember the tabernacle and the temple were given because that is where the presence of God was. So man would go to that tabernacle, would go to that temple, and that is where they would find the presence of God. You and I today, if we are children of God, we are already in the presence of God because the Spirit is indwelling each one of us. This is a meeting this morning in the presence of God. It is not the structure of this building that makes God's presence real. If we were out in the front today or out in the side and we were gathering, the presence of God would be here because God's people are here. But the tabernacle in the Old Testament was not just something God thought up and would say, this would be a good way to bring God's people into my presence. No, it was given a very specific purpose. But we've got to remember that the tabernacle was intentionally a temporary place of worship. It was never intended to be the everlasting, eternal place of worship. We remember the story when Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well, and even at the woman at the well began asking questions about temple worship, about going to Jerusalem. And Jesus really undid that entirety and said, that's not the way that worship is now. It's not going to a building. It's not going to a tent. It's not going to a tabernacle because the true tabernacle has come. That true tabernacle, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, is Jesus Christ Himself. So why spend time on the tabernacle? Why spend any time discussing it? Well, first of all, because the Bible declares, and if it says it, then it's important. I don't buy this idea that there are some important parts of Scripture and other Scriptures just not 
as important. It's all important because it all comes together to give us a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. This temporary place of worship that's made mention, you see there that the first verse tells us that this first covenant had also ordinances of divine service, and this is important, and a worldly sanctuary. This was a earthly sanctuary. It was a what we'll refer to as a carnal tabernacle, not a sinful place, but it was a place that was ordained for that purpose, to be an earthly temporary place to meet with God. The pattern of this tabernacle was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. The pattern was given to him that he was to build this tabernacle, construct this tabernacle according to the pattern, the blueprint. That was the way it was to be built. It was not what Moses thought it should be. It wasn't what the Levites thought it should be. It was built according to the pattern of what God had said, this is what the tabernacle should look like. But we see there, as we read in verse number 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Now, that's not a reference to the Reformation that we think about in Reformed theology. He's not talking about, see, there's where you know you can believe in Reformed theology. No, I believe in Reformed theology because the Bible teaches. That's why. But that idea of Reformation there is pointing to the time that would come. And of course, we know that the time that would come is the appearance and the coming of Christ. So what were these ordinances? Well, these ordinances were based upon and were conducted upon the structure of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. But the tabernacle also had two sections. It had what we'll call the first section to to simplify the matter, and then the second section. And between the two sections, there was a heavy, thick veil. The veil separated the two sections. So you kind of have a picture of what this looks like. Within that tabernacle, these ordinances of divine worship and service, there were ceremonies that were conducted there. This worldly sanctuary that is mentioned in verse number one, this worldly sanctuary, the tabernacle, all of the contents of this tabernacle were intended to be types of Christ. In other words, they all had a purpose. They weren't just random items that were placed there. So what we're going to see this morning is each one of these items and how that typified Christ in a very simplified manner. Now, I would tell you, we could do an entire study on each item. So today will not be exhaustive. So if this leaves you wanting more and you say, listen, pastor, you're just not covering enough. I'm going to encourage you, go home and make it enough and study more on your own. So this will not be exhaustive, but it will give us the typical the type that was being demonstrated in these particular objects. We also understand that we could never fully understand the Old Testament Scriptures until we see that the Old Testament Scriptures were meant to represent and to point to Jesus Christ as our substitute. If we don't have the Old Testament, what the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapter number 9 would have absolutely no relevance to us. We would be sitting here asking ourselves the question, what in the world is a tabernacle? What in the world is the Ark of the Covenant? Now think about that for a moment. We'd have no concept of the Ark of the Covenant. 
One of the, one of the best examples of, of the Bible declaring the importance of the Old Testament to understanding is found in the Gospel according to Luke, in Luke 24, if you'll turn there. Again, we can't read the entire narrative here, but in Luke 24, uh, Jesus himself, after his resurrection, has made an appearance to two, two disciples. And while they are on this road, in verse number 24, Jesus, of course, is walking very close behind them. And it tells us in Luke 24, 24, and certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found that even so as the woman, women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus expounds the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and he shows these disciples, these were about me. These were scriptures that would point to me. If you'll drop down to verse 44, he says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It's important to understand that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Christ. Christ is all over the Old Testament. In pictures, in types, in prophecies, it makes the Bible, let's be honest, make sense. Without Christ, the Old Testament makes no sense. Without the New Testament, the Old Testament even begins to make little sense to us. But when we connect the dots here, we begin to understand not only the importance of the tabernacle, but what was going on in those divine ordinances of worship and service and what the intention was in the Old Testament. So first of all, let's deal with the sections of the tabernacle. The first section we see by Scripture, it says, for there was a tabernacle made, the first, that's a reference to the first section, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now this first section is also called the holy place. It had three pieces of furniture. We have the table of showbread. This table was a wooden table that was overlaid with gold. The picture of this table, the wood was a picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And the gold was a picture or a type of the deity of Christ. A wooden table overlaid with gold picturing the humanity and the deity of Christ. That's what it typified. On that table was the showbread, the 12 loaves. Those 12 loaves represented Jesus Christ as the bread of life. He refers to himself in the New Testament as the bread of life, directly pointing back to the very thing and the very object that was in the tabernacle. 
that there's also mentioned a candlestick. This candlestick portrayed Christ as the light of the world. Within this tabernacle, there were no windows. There was no other light shining in. There was this lampstand. There was this candle. There was this only light which represented Jesus Christ as the light of the world. So we have the showbread that demonstrates him to be the bread of life. We have the candlestick which demonstrates him to be the light of the world. That candlestick was also made of pure gold, again representing the Lord's deity. There were seven candles in that lampstand which portrays the perfection of Christ's being and the completeness of his revelation. So this tabernacle is a picture. This tabernacle was comprised of these sections. Again, we could go into greater detail about the outer courts, the inner sanctuaries, how the outer courts or the outer sanctuary was only accessible to Levites. The inner sanctuary inside was only accessible by he who could enter in on the Day of Atonement, the high priest. So very, very pointed, very, very direct as to what could take place within this particular sanctuary. So this first sanctuary, this first section, the candlestick, the table, and the showbread. All of these articles, these articles of furniture, had a significance with pointing to the person and the work of Christ. If we go on to the next verse, we see that after the second veil, that we see we're moving in from the first section into the second section, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or you've maybe heard it over the years called the holy of holies. It was the most holy place. Just outside of that was a golden censer. This golden censer was right outside of this tabernacle, right outside of the veil that went into the holy of holies. It was also referred to as this altar of incense. Incense, we're told a little bit about in Exodus chapter number 30. So if you'll turn back there, I want you to see the significance of this incense. Again, these are things that maybe we don't fully comprehend today because when you came into the building today, uh, you don't see an altar of incense uh, being burned. You don't see a thick, heavy veil. Uh, You don't see a table with showbread on it. You don't see a table that's wood covered in gold, do you? You don't see any of these items. Those items were intentionally a temporary place of worship. But in Exodus chapter 30, these are part of the pattern that was given to Moses. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of sheet and wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be of the same." And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and the sides thereof, round about, and the horns thereof, and thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And two golden rings shalt thou make it under the crown of it, by the two corners thereof, under, uh, thereof upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it, and they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal. And thou shalt make the staves of Shedom wood, and overlay them with gold, and thou shalt put it before the veil... Okay, this is the censer that is by the Ark of the Testimony before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with thee. This altar of incense that was built, this, this intentional altar that was to continually burn incense 
before the veil. That typified Christ's intercession. So this is showing how Christ would, at some day, would become our intercessor. It was a continual, without end, burning that was before the veil. So before the heavy veil, there was where that censer was placed. Just before you could go into the Holy of Holies. It was placed just outside of it. Now inside of that second sanctuary, that second section, the holiest of all, there was one piece of furniture with two parts. The one piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant. Now in Jewish worship, and I think this is so important, in Jewish worship there was no more important item than the Ark of the Covenant. If you were to say all of these things, what was the most important to the Jewish worship? It was the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark was also made of wood, covered with pure gold. And within that Ark of the Covenant contained the tables of the law, Aaron's rod that budded, and the golden pot of manna. You can see where it tells us there in our text this morning, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Each one of those items is significant in and of itself. There are no unimportant items inside of that Ark. It contained the very things. Uh, talk about the, 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 uh, the manna. Think about how important manna was to the, to the Israelite. Think about the manna that was received in the wilderness, the sustaining power of God when they crossed over the Red Sea and God took care of them with manna from heaven. There's manna inside of that ark. That bread, again, the bread of life. Think about it from that. Aaron's rod. Some people aren't even aware of what Aaron's rod is, but if you read number 17, you will find out that it was Aaron's rod. That the rod that budded was how Aaron was chosen to be the very head of the priestly line. And then they had the tablets or the tables. Those tablets or those tables contained the Ten Commandments. Now again, this is not exhaustive this morning, but we understand this was a very important item, especially in the line of Jewish worship. On top of that ark is what's referred to as the mercy seat. The mercy seat in Hebrews 9 Verse 5 says, And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. These glory, these cherubims, these angels, the, the, the wings spread out over top of it, on top of the mercy seat. They were intended to, to illustrate the presence of God. That this is, this is where the presence of God dwells. It's the very, what we refer to the mercy seat, and this is important terminology, the mercy seat was the covering. The covering, the lid, it covered, mercy covers. Mercy seat was also where the blood of the sacrifice was applied upon the covering. You can visualize it. The angels, the cherubims of glory, the wings outstretched over the top demonstrating the presence of God. The blood's applied on the mercy seat. It's a covering. Think about what's inside of that box. Think about what's inside of that ark. 
The mercy seat was a solid lid of pure gold. It completely covered the ark and the tables of God's broken law, which were in it. The mercy seat, the place of atonement and propitiation, was overshadowed by the cherubims of glory. If you turn back to Exodus 25, we get a little bit of a better picture of this. Exodus 25, look at verse 17. This is specific to the mercy seat. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Now watch this. And there I will meet with thee at the mercy seat. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel you think the mercy seat had significance you think the mercy seat had significance for only the Jew or does the significance of the ark and the mercy seat even for us in the New Testament have great application for what it was symbolizing Think about what was happening at the top of the mercy seat. I will meet with you there. I will commune with you there. It was the place where God dwells. It was that ark, that mercy seat, was the most important item in the entirety of that sanctuary and in that tabernacle. But then notice as we go on to verse number 6, and I want you to notice how the writer now begins to kind of explain uh, what is actually going on, what's being typified. Now, when these things were thus ordained, verse 6, the priest went always into the first tabernacle. The only way to get into that tabernacle was through the first section. In other words, you could not go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil without going through the first section first. There was not a secondary door that the high priest could sneak in on the Day of Atonement and go into the Holy of Holies. He had to come in through that first section. That is very important to think about. What was he doing is he was accomplishing the service of God. That first section of the tabernacle, the Levitical priest went in there every single day. This was not just, hey, it's Sunday, let's go to the tabernacle. The priest ministered and did divine service in the first section of the tabernacle every single day. But then there would be that one day. That one day when the Day of Atonement would come. And only the great high priest, by entering in through the first section 
could go into the Holy of Holies. Notice that it says at the end of verse 6, he went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God, but into the second went the high priest. The high priest only. If anyone other than that high priest went into that veil, that was certain death. You could not just say, I think I'm going to be the great high priest today. I think I'm going to assume the role of the great high priest. You could be a Levitical priest, but you were not necessarily the high priest. Only the high priest could go beyond the veil. The symbolism and the significance of the tabernacle is extreme, and it's a glorious, beautiful picture of Christ. And that veil, that veil that we know so little about, but so powerfully that when Jesus Christ accomplished salvation on the cross, that veil was torn in two, specifically from top to bottom, demonstrating the now access into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, where once was reserved only for the great high priest. The beauty of the tabernacle in its divine service, even though it was a worldly sanctuary. But notice the high priest alone would go once every year, not without blood. He could not go beyond that veil without blood. Blood for whom, he tells us, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. We've learned this over our study of Hebrews that the high priest had to have his own sins atoned for before he could atone for the sins of others. If he would have tried to go beyond the veil without any blood, he would have been, he would have been dead in an instant. There was no access to the Holy of Holies without blood. That blood, if we study it in the Old Testament, we find out that the blood of that sacrifice, once it was through the veil, was applied to the top of the Ark of the Covenant upon that mercy seat, which was of pure gold, signifying deity. But then notice, verse 8 tells us that the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So what we see here is in verses 6 and 7, we see that the sacrifices that were required by God's law in the New Testament, or the Old Testament rather, are being described. The common priest went in every day into the holy place, the first tabernacle. According to Jewish worship, every morning and every evening, they went in accomplishing the service of God. None of the common Levitical priests were allowed to go beyond the veil into the holiest of all. Only that high priest alone was able and allowed to enter beyond the veil. He went in once a year, and he went in with the blood of a spotless lamb. Jesus Christ being declared by John the Baptist in the New Testament when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, that is a direct reference to the blood that was sprinkled upon the mercy seat in the Old Testament tabernacle and later into the temple. This was not just a made-up phrase that said, let's call Jesus the Lamb of God. Every Jewish individual who heard the Lamb, they knew what the Lamb meant. They knew that the Lamb was the Day of Atonement when that spotless, perfect Lamb had to be sacrificed and blood had to be shed. 
You realize the lamb that was eligible and was qualified to be the sacrificial lamb had to be perfect? It couldn't have anything wrong with its wool. It couldn't have anything wrong with its legs. It had to be spotless. You think God knew what He was doing when He gave the pattern and the instructions for the tabernacle that it had to be the spotless Lamb of God? When we read wonderful passages like Isaiah 53, the Lamb brought before the slaughter, yet in Jesus Christ we have a perfect Lamb of God. He who was without spot, without blemish, without sin. The tabernacle was typifying all of these things. The blood was sprinkled. The blood of that lamb was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Don't lose sight of this. Covering the broken law. Those tablets inside of that ark were broken. They were broken because man broke them. You see that the blood is covering the broken law. It it is covered It even makes it even more insulting that a person actually thinks they can keep the law and be saved by the keeping of the law when God made such a beautiful picture of the blood having to cover on a lid made of pure gold signifying deity. And I love the word mercy. It's interesting to me, even though in its theological implications, it's called a mercy seat and not called a judgment seat. We do deserve, we deserve the contents of that ark. We deserve what the broken law means. We deserve to have our blood shed and we deserve to die what the death that Christ died. But praise God for his mercy. Praise God that his mercy has covered, not just covered it, atoned for, removed the wages of our sin, which is death. And granted to us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To say today that the Old Testament tabernacle means nothing to me today is an insult to God's word. For the church today that claims we don't need anything but the New Testament, you're an abomination to God to say that the Old Testament doesn't matter and the Old Testament tabernacle doesn't matter because you don't even have an understanding of Christ if you don't fully understand the tabernacle and the temple. There's nothing that will show you more of what we are as sinners before God than what was going on in the tabernacle, what was going on in the temple later. You say, well, that was just Jewish worship. No, it was a picture of what saving grace looks like. It's a picture of the beauty of God's sovereign grace. Now, I want to turn, I want to, turn to Leviticus 16, and we don't, again, there are so many passages today that we could spend an entire sermon on, and we're not doing that today. But if you are familiar with Scripture, you will understand that Leviticus 16 is one of the um, pinnacles of pointing to not only the death of Christ, but the picture of the Day of Atonement. And I do want to read a portion of this because I want us to see the beauty of this Day of Atonement. This Leviticus 16 is a picture, a type of Christ as the high priest and his sacrifice. And again, notice who the Lord is speaking to. The Lord spoke, spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. Remember, they offered, and they offered it wrongly. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for the burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one goat for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And the Aaron shall bring and Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. You are understanding how precise and how specific that the priest had to be. Folks, this was not something that the priest just went in there flippantly and said, I just got to go make it to get this offering and the sacrifice, get, get it out of the way. It was very specific as to how he was to approach. And he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for the congregation of Israel. Again, I just want you to see the seriousness of these sacrifices. The sections laid out clearly. The sacrifices and what was required laid out clearly. And then finally, the services. Verses 8 through 10 in Hebrews. Let's look at the services of the tabernacle. We've already kind of touched on these, but this will kind of pull everything together to see what the intent was. Back to Hebrews 9, again verse 8. The Holy Ghost was signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. This is proof to us that that tabernacle was only meant to be a picture of that which was to come. The Holy Spirit signifying that the presence and the purpose of this tabernacle 
had not yet been fully manifest as to what its purpose was. Now, we cannot make the mistake of thinking that even when the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement and made that atonement, that he fully understood everything you and I understand about Jesus Christ today. You cannot believe the idea that even the Old Testament saints saw the cross. They didn't, underst- they didn't even understand what a cross was because that was a Roman execution instrument. The Jew had no idea, the, priest, the Levitical priest had no idea what a cross was. Sometimes we do it, and maybe I'm, I'm splitting hairs here, but it would not be theologically appropriate to say that Abraham was looking at the cross. Now, it does say in the book of John that he rejoiced to see my day about Christ. He rejoiced in a promise of the fulfillment of this and that the promises of the prophets that there was a Messiah coming, but he didn't fully understand what the cross was. Folks, you realize even the disciples, when they were walking with Jesus for three and a half years, did not have a working clue as to what the cross really was or what was really getting ready to happen. Because when he begins to explain to them what's getting ready to take place, they are, they're floored. They're perplexed. What do you mean you're going to leave us? But typifying is completely different than having the full understanding. As long as the first tabernacle was standing, the full revelation of it would not be seen. That's what verse 8 is talking about. So this may seem strange to us today. We may look at these things and we say, well, this has absolutely no meaning for me today. That is a terrific mistake to say that the tabernacle has no value for us today. The Holy Spirit, by inspiration of the Scripture, is telling us that these divinely ordained services or ordinance of the Lord signified the necessity of what Christ would accomplish at Calvary. That's why they're significant for you and I. They're significant because they would show us and teach us who Christ is. So verse 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit used these ordinances to declare the way to God. What an amazing statement. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. This is what helps Hebrews 10 now. We've read this a couple of times over the last few weeks intentionally start to make even more sense. Hebrews 10, look at verse 10. By the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. Here's the point, which can never take away sin. Every single day, the common priest went in morning and evening and did the work of the priest, did the work of the ministry, and never once did it fully, completely take away sin. You know, we often do things with a goal to completion, right? I mean, I assume that's not just me. If I set off to do something, there's a goal of completion. I don't just do it because the thing that drives me crazy is not, I, don't, I can't stand not having closure, right? I need closure. Those priests were not bringing closure because they could never take away sin. But in Hebrews 10, the writer goes on and says, but this man, that's a reference back to Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. By Christ's Christ's offering, you and I that are in Christ, sanctified and perfected. 
That doesn't mean we're without sin, but that's what guarantees that when God the Father sees the Son, He sees His righteousness. He doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ, and that's why we are granted access into the very throne room of God. It's because He sees the Son. The perfect one-time sacrifice. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is witness to us, for after that He had said before. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> the Holy Spirit's confirming what was being signified in the tabernacle. But also that this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. Will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. That's why it is crazy to think that we are supposed to bring a sacrifice like they brought to the tabernacle in this day and age. Yet I've told you this, you know, there are people around this world today that have brought a sacrificial lamb into their worship service today as a means of gaining favor with God. I want to challenge you about thinking outside of the American Christianity and American belief. This is not what everybody does. There are people in the world who are building replicas of a tabernacle who are daily ministering every day like this. They have a self-appointed high priest who are, they have a day of atonement every year and they are still offering these sacrifices. And what's the bottom line? They can never atone for sin. You know why they're doing that? They're doing that because they don't believe in the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ who once for all said, you are sanctified and perfected forever. There are countries in the world, this will appall you, where a person is chosen from among them who is actually crucified on a cross. You say, it doesn't happen. I'm not lying to you. And they believe that the shed blood of that man, he's somehow chosen from them, is somehow atoning. That's just the murder of a man. His blood does absolutely nothing. God accepts nothing of that sacrifice. Why? Because the one-time offering has already been offered, and there, by the promises of God, there is no longer a need for another sacrifice. Folks, I hope you see the beauty in this. The tabernacle, verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. I was talking recently with somebody about this. We are so, such a servant to time. Everything we do is time. Everything is where we got to be, how long we've been somewhere, where, how long's too long, how long's too short. But the point here is, is that this figure, this time, when types were being used is what is meant here, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertained to the conscience. That's a direct reference back to the high priest. It was just a type. Even he couldn't be made perfect in his service. The tabernacle and its priesthood at services were only symbols, types, and pictures of Christ and the accomplishment of redemption that would be found in Christ alone. Those sacrifices and services could never take away sin. Verse 10 tells us, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them. I love the untils in the Bible. 
It's another good theological study. If you like study words, study the untils. One of my favorite ones is until he come. I love the untils. The until here makes reference until what? Until the time of reformation. This is a reference made to how the law, the ceremonial Levitical law would be changed. It answers that question about the changing of the law. Remember, morally speaking, the moral law is still just as in effect as it's always been. But what changed is the Levitical priesthood and the way of offering those sacrifices and that one-time day of atonement. That's what changed. They were carnal ordinances and legal services on the Old Testament that were imposed upon the children of Israel and were only meant to be until the coming of Christ. That's why when Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill it. Some people say, well, they did away with the requirement. No, Christ fulfilled it. <laughs> There's a big difference in what I just said. Because you've got a whole new line of churches that are saying, woohoo, we are not subject to the law. We don't have to do anything. And they don't even know why they're saying that. Matter of fact, that attitude really kind of suggests there might be a problem. Because we should delight to do his law. We should delight in the moral law. The Ten Commandments should actually still mean something to us. Adultery is still adultery. Coveting is still coveting. Murder is still murder. But when you make a blanket statement and say, God's done away with the whole law. So you're saying it's just lawlessness now? No. There's still things in the law that, yes, were intended for only the Mosaic period and only for the time. But the moral law itself. We see the beauty of this. This tabernacle was simply to be a comparison. Comparing the old with the new. A time when these types would be used compared to a time when the types would no longer be necessary because the type would be fulfilled. Jesus Christ can't be a type because He's the fulfillment. He fulfilled all the types. What's the conclusion to this? Christ is that better tabernacle as we learned even a couple weeks ago. It is the main theme of Hebrews 9 that Christ is a better tabernacle. Everything in the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple was typical of Christ. A figure for the time then present until the time of Reformation. Folks, when we come to worship today, we're not coming to a tabernacle. We're not coming to a temple. We are coming in the reality that Jesus Christ is our true place of worship. Jesus Christ is our true place of blessing. Christ is our all in all. Next week, we're going to deal in a more in-depth fashion the Ark of the Covenant. Because we haven't, even, we haven't even scraped the surface of those items in the Ark, the significance of them, and how they even in themselves point us to Christ being perfectly typified. I trust this morning that you know Christ as your Savior, that you know that you are a child of God. And that Christ is the only remedy for your sins. And no amount of sacrifices, no amount of shed blood, no false crucifixion on a cross somewhere, no replica of the tabernacle, no replica of the temple is going to save you. It is only through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ that you can be saved. And I would tell you to call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord.
for the beauty of the tabernacle and what it was typifying, what it was pointing us to. And Lord, in all of its beauty, all of its service, all of its pattern, it was not Christ. And Lord, as we live today, as those who are living in the New Testament, understanding that Jesus Christ has already come, he's already satisfied the demands of a holy God. May we rejoice today in knowing that our salvation is certain and secure in Christ's one-time offering. Father, be with those today who have yet to repent and believe the gospel. May the Spirit of God move upon them and move in their life and open their eyes to see and unstop their ears. Make them willing to believe that they may see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.